Hello, everyone. Please turn to Romans 12, 1, 2. A living sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of God. Thanks, Marcelo, for reading God's word to us, brother. Good to see all of you. Thank you fellowship. Thanks, Becca, for leading us in that prayer for our community. Those uh, beautiful words that I know are beautiful to, to God as he receives them in, in Christ's name. And thanks, Tim, for leading us through that great uh, first schedule in, uh, in all of history. Although I told Tim that I'm, I'm, I'm confused because I thought... I thought uh, Canadians pronounced it pronounced it schedule, and he 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 went schedule. I guess he was he's contextualizing for us uh, United States of Americans. So last week we began examining God's instructions for us in Romans twelve one and two, and we were left with this question: Where am I possibly conforming to this world? Or stated differently, where am I possibly conforming to the present age? And today what we'll do, God willing, is wrap up this two-message miniseries by considering that question together. But I thought I should tell you a little bit about the origin of this two-message miniseries and, and why it is that we're asking this question to begin with. There are many reasons for why we're, we're, we're um, reading Romans 12, 1 and 2, and many reasons that this question about conforming to this present age has been on my mind recently, and I thought that it would be helpful to, for us as a church to engage that question. But, but one reason in particular is this. Our discipleship group in this past season, like many of your discipleship groups, was reading a book called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion by Rebecca McLaughlin. And each chapter in that book, as many of you know, deals with a question that you or that someone else might have about the Christian faith. Hard questions that you or others may have about the Christian faith. And so chapter 10 of that book asks this question, does the Bible condone slavery? It's one of the more challenging chapters in the book. And in our discipleship group, this sparked a discussion um, as we were going through our discussion guide, and we hit question number seven, which says this. The author, this is question number seven in our discussion guide, says the author of this book discusses the fact that many professing Christians in America, including highly regarded leaders and brilliant theologians, actually owned slaves or supported the practice of slavery. And so the question that 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 raises for us is, how would you respond to an unbelieving friend who asked, how was it that so many Christians could accept the evil of chattel slavery in the United States for so long? If you're a follower of Christ, how would you respond to that question? If someone asked you, how, how were Christians able to do this for so long? How were they able to, 
to engage in this evil practice for so long. And then that sparked a really great discussion, but then it led to an even better discussion when we hit the next question. Next question was, the author, McLaughlin, asserts that we are all liable to have blind spots in our beliefs, often created by the cultures that surround us. So where might our blind spots be? And how can you identify those blind spots? That's a good question. I shouldn't say that. I'm the one who wrote the question. It, I, I think it's a good question. That's why. But in any case, it led to a healthy discussion that took this, this kind of objective question about slavery and brought it really close to home and said, where are we perhaps engaging in practices and, and, and systems of belief that are contrary to God's word, but are shaped by our culture? Where are our blind spots? And the reason we need to ask that question is because culture has impacted all of us in ways that we really don't see, ways that are hard to identify, even when we are committed to looking for them. Sometimes practices that are contrary to God's word, in our minds, we might think of them as okay, morally neutral, maybe even think of them as godly behaviors. I remember when I was in seminary, I read an article by a man named R.L. Dabney. R.L. Dabney was a 19th century Presbyterian minister in the South. And um, I read this article, which I found somewhat helpful. But then I came afterwards to realize that R.L. Dabney had written some pretty awful things as well. He wrote some great things, and he wrote some really terrible things. I came across another article of his who was arguing for the fact, this was shortly after the Emancipation Proclamation, he was arguing for the fact that African-American men should not be elders in churches because of their race. They're not qualified to be elders. And I remember bringing this up to some other respected brothers and sisters that I knew at the time, saying, how, how does this happen? How does a guy like R.L. Dabney believe so much of what I would believe to be true about the Bible, and yet at the same time spout off this horrible doctrine, the inferiority of an entire race? And I was told by more than one person, well, you know, R.L. Dabney was a man of his time. He was a man of his time. Lots of people believe that. And he was like many people in that era. Brothers and sisters, we don't want to be men and women of our time. God doesn't want us to be men and women of our time. Pastor Doug Logan put it this way. He said, we need the spirit of the men of Issachar and the spirit of the Bereans. As we live in this world, we need to have the spirit of the men of Issachar and the spirit of the Bereans. And what he was talking about is this. In 1 Chronicles 12, there's a, a brief comment in there about this group of people called the men of Issachar, and they were described this way. They were men who had an understanding of their times. They had an understanding of their times. They were culturally in touch. But Pastor Logan says we also need the spirit of the Bereans. The Bereans are people that we read about in Acts 17. We find out that they were a people who examined the scriptures to see if what they were learning from others was really true. So we need the spirit of the men of Issachar who are in touch with our culture and understand what our culture believes and are living in our culture, but at the same time we need a Berean spirit, the spirit that says anything that I'm learning from my culture, I need to 
check and test against God's word to see if this is really true so that I don't accept truths, quote-unquote, from my culture, practices, beliefs, values that are contrary to what God tells me in his revealed word. Romans 12, 1 and 2 teaches us to live in this world with the spirit of the men of Issachar and the spirit of the Bereans. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is not advice on how to find acceptance with God. And I said this last week. This is not advice for us on how to find forgiveness from God. No, this is instruction for us on how to live because we've already found acceptance and forgiveness from God. And that acceptance with God and that forgiveness from God only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. God accepts and forgives anyone who turns away from sin and believes in Jesus, who puts all of his hope, all of her hope on his life, his death, his resurrection. Put differently, Romans 12, 1 and 2 doesn't tell us how to enter the kingdom of God. It tells us how God calls us to live once we've become a citizen of his kingdom by receiving the king, Jesus, through faith. So when you became, if you have become a follower of Jesus, when you became his follower, you became a citizen of his kingdom. And that means that now as you live in this world, you are an exile, a stranger, a sojourner, an alien, a pilgrim. These are all words that, 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 that English translations use to get across this idea that this is not your real home. Our sister Becca just used the word migrant. Yes, we are migrants in this world if we have believed in Jesus Christ. This is not our final home. This is not where our citizenship lies. Last week, we traced that theme of exile or sojourning in this world through the, the teaching of the Apostle Paul in places like his letter to the Philippians. We traced it through the teaching of the Apostle Peter. We traced it through the teaching of Jesus himself. And all of them agree. <laughs> if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this world is not your home. And Romans 12, 2, explains that because that's true, you cannot be conformed to this world or to this present age. But instead, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Don't be conformed, be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. And that, and that idea of testing in order to discern, it's really just one word. It has to do with the idea of analyzing interpreting, examining. We have to be able to analyze, interpret, examine the culture we live in and the received quote-unquote truths that we're on the receiving end of. More importantly, we need to test them and examine them in order to determine whether or not they are the will of God, whether or not they align with the truth that God has given us in his word. And it's only if we do that that we'll be able to make wise judgments, that we'll be able to live well. 
in this world as exiles. We saw last week that discerning God's will, according to Romans chapter 12, is not about just discerning what decision God wants you to make when it comes to those big life choices about who you're going to marry or where you're going to move or what career you're going to choose or what field you're going to go into. What's your calling in life? Those are huge decisions, but discerning God's will doesn't only or even primarily have to do with that. Discerning God's will has to do with examining the very small choices sometimes that are before you every day about what you're going to value, what you're going to believe, how you're going to live, and discern whether your choices are in line with what God reveals in his word. That is his will, what he has told you to be true. Last week we read Jeremiah chapter 29, 5 through 7, and we saw that just because this world, or as Jeremiah puts it, this city that we live in is not our home, that doesn't mean that this place and this age or this time doesn't matter. It does matter. God has always told his people to seek the well-being of the city where he has sent us to live as exiles. That's why we pray for our communities and we seek their good. But God also says, remember this, it's not your final home. He says in Jeremiah 29, I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back out of exile, out of the world where you live now, the city where I've sent you to live. Temporarily, I'm going to come, I'm going to fulfill my promise to bring you back to this place. And by this place, he means my kingdom, your eternal home. So God says, keep all your hopes set on what he's going to do when he comes. And God warns us, don't get so comfortable in this world that your way of thinking and living begins to mirror the values and the ways of, of this place where God has sent you for only a brief season. In fact, God explains to us that the more we conform to the ways and thinking of this world, the more we live and think like a citizen of this city, the less we'll be able to seek the good of this city. What we'll begin doing is seeking this world's good on its terms or in its ways, which often are not God's ways. One of those ways may be seeking the good or the perceived good of our city, of our world, of our country through violence, Outrage, hatred, the canceling of others, approving of evil. These are all the world's ways to accomplish good. God says the more you conform to this world, the less good you'll be able to accomplish for this world. In fact, even your ability to discern what's good for this city will get clouded as your values are warped by the ways of this world. So, as I said last week, if you've been around church for a while, you can probably point out many ways that the will of God conflicts with the wisdom and ways of this world. And we are always, all of us are in danger of conforming in so many different areas. But, but sometimes the danger of conforming in some of those areas, it's not so much a discernment problem as much as it's an obedience problem. And as I explained last week, there are areas where it's so clear that certain ways of living are in conflict with what God wants. 
it's so clear that certain things that are upheld as good in this world are really not good and not acceptable and not perfect in God's eyes. And so the question in those areas is, who are you going to obey? Are you going to obey this world and its wisdom, or will you obey what God says? But, but here's a more subtle danger that we just began thinking about last week. There are ways of living and thinking that we can easily confuse with the will of God. There are certain ways of thinking and living that are common to this world that we might look at and think, yeah, that's fine with God. Why is your wallpaper? You might not even see them as problematic because, because we're subtly accepting the thinking of this present age and we're not actively being transformed by the renewing of our minds. This can happen to any of us, and it has happened to all of us in one way or another. I love this little parable from David Foster Wallace, which I also shared last week. He tells a story about two young fish who were swimming along when they met an older fish who was swimming in the opposite direction. And the older fish sees these two younger fish, and he says to them, Morning, boys. How's the water? And those two young fish, they keep swimming on for a while, and then one of them looks at the other, and he says, what the heck is water? The fish wasn't aware of what water is because it's all he ever knew. He swimmed in it, breathed in it, was born in it, and would die in it. And so he's not even aware of it. It takes a very discerning, very self-aware fish to notice the water that he's swimming in. And our culture is the water that we swim in. We don't always notice it but it's certainly constantly affecting the way we live and the way we think. In some ways, it even shapes the way we interpret God's words. So that while we think that we're being guided solely by God's truth, it's very often the case that we're being guided by the values of this city, this age, that we have unknowingly, perhaps, mapped onto God's word. And so what can happen is that our, our witness as Christ's followers in this world sometimes is more a reflection of the age we live in than it is the values and ethics of God. So that instead of being ambassadors in this world from another world, we live and breathe and act like we're citizens of this world. Rather than being ambassadors sent into the world, we live like natives of this world. And so God says, you need to be transformed by the ongoing renewal of your mind so that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so going back to that question we started with, the question we really want to think about today is, where are we possibly conforming? And what I want to, I'm going to think about that. I want us to think, I'm going to present this to you kind of in the, in the plural, right? What are we what areas are we conforming in? But I wouldn't encourage you to personalize it. Where have I conformed? Where am I likely to conform? So don't just think about in terms of the church broadly. Where are Christians in 2021 conforming? Where's the church conforming worldwide? No, me, you, my household, my mind. Where am I conforming? 
Let's start by thinking about some of the quote-unquote truths that our kids are being taught. We are being taught too. Our kids aren't being taught anything different than we are being taught. What, what are some of the quote-unquote truths or the values and principles that we, and those of us who have children, many of our children, are being discipled towards by the world? And as we think about this, I, I might come off like I'm kind of like a, an old guy just ranting about how bad things are, and I hope I don't come off that way. Maybe some of what I'll say sound like the language of, you know, culture war. We need to fight this culture, claim it for God. That kind of language has often dominated Christian discourse. But, but as we think about our culture today, I want us to realize that, that the point of this, that the, the point of this cultural analysis, it's not about just criticizing or defeating this world. No, the, what we want to do is much more humble than that. What we want to do today is about understanding how we ourselves have been compromised in ways that we don't notice. It's about understanding how we have been discipled in the ways of this present age, personally, and the ways that maybe we have discipled others in the ways of this present age. We are complicit. We're not on the outside of our culture looking in. We are in the water. So our attitude can't be the, like the, the prayer of that Pharisee who said, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like other men. I thank you, Lord, that my thinking is not like the corrupted thinking of this world. No, we can't. We don't get to other this culture that way. Our prayer needs to be the prayer of David who said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. We need to ask this question with a humble readiness to confess and repent. We should walk into this assuming that we have been shaped by our culture, because we have. And approach this question with a humble preparedness to say, show me where, Lord, I'll confess it back to you, and I want to repent. So what are we being told? What are our kids being told? What's in the water right now? Uh, there, there's so much to be said about this, right? I'm just, I'm just going to give you a couple of, 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 of statements that I believe reflect the wisdom of our age. What's in the water that we're swimming in? And see if any of this rings true or rings accurate as an accurate reflection of our culture to you. And, and I crowdsource this to be, to be um, transparent. These are just some ideas that others gave me too. Tell me if these are quote-unquote truths that you have heard or observed how about this one? Follow your heart. Follow your heart. That's what you need to do. You want to find happiness? You want to find joy? You want to find peace and success in this life? Follow your heart. And by the way, like I said, it's easy to mock some of this as an outside looking in and mocking. Let, 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 let's humbly think about the ways that this thinking has actually infiltrated the way that we approach life, okay? How about this one, this statement? Love is love. Love is love. Any kind of love, it's love. God approves because God is love. And all forms of love to him, it's all love. How about this one? There is no one truth. 
There's your truth and there's my truth. Don't let anyone deny your truth. How about this? You have to be true to yourself. If you want to find joy, it's similar to follow your heart, right? You want, you want to really experience the fullness of all this life has to offer. Ultimately, you must be true to, above all, self. How about this one? It's, if, it's okay if no one gets hurt. Whatever you want to do, however you want to live, it's okay as long as everyone is consenting and no one gets hurt. Like I said, I crowdsource those. Maybe, maybe some of you may come up with better statements that reflect the era that we live in. But I would propose to you that these are uh, taken together they form a creed, a kind of creed, a kind of statement of faith. It reflects our culture. Now, it's likely that many of us would reject all, if not most, uh, most if not all, uh, of those statements, at least as, as explicitly stated there. But even if we would reject them, how many of these ideas have in subtle ways still shaped us? Perhaps many of you have heard the the term expressive individualism, expressive individualism. An author by the name of Yuval Levin, he wrote a book called The Fractured Republic. He describes expressive individualism this way, and he talks about expressive individualism as a, a, a principle that, 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 that's, that's governing and shaping so much of the way we live right now in 21st century Western world. He says, that term suggests not only a desire to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. And here what he's saying. I'm going to stop the quote for a second. He's saying, he's saying that the, the idea of expressive individualism teaches us that our golden life, the deep desire that we have and rightfully have a need to pursue is this desire to create our own path and find fulfillment by defining and living out our own identity. He says, quote, it's a drive both to be more like whatever you already are and also to live in a society fully asserting who you believe you are. The capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence by defining their personal identities is increasingly equated with liberty and with the meaning of some of our basic rights. And it's given pride of place in our self-understanding. In other words, it takes the idea of defining your own identity and places it at the top of all other priorities. Not only do you get to, but you must define who you are for yourself. And no one else can tell you who you are author by the name of Trevin Wax unpacks that a little bit. He says, the key here is that the purpose of life is to find one's deepest self and then express that self to the world. Forging that identity in ways that counter whatever family, friends, previous generations, religious authorities, political affiliations might say. 
You chart your own course and decide who you are in this world. He goes on to say, many, many a Disney movie has followed a narrative plotline of, of someone finding and forging their own identity in opposition to the naysayers. If you watch Disney movies, you know that's a, that's a, that's a constant theme, right? And I'm not, I'm not trying to trash Disney movies. I like Disney movies. I was 9.30 this morning, my, my five-year-old and I were, were, were singing Moana songs together, and she knows them a lot better than I do, but I love those songs. At the same time, I realize that these songs are teaching my daughter and are teaching me. It's not just her. You don't have to be five years old. You can be 47 and still believe this, right? They're teaching me and her. We, we forge our own identity regardless of what anyone has to tell us. And the most important thing in life is to live out that self-definition of who we are. And so I'm not saying we cut off our kids from, from Disney. I plan to watch Moana again. I like that movie, and we'll sing it more often as a family too. But I need to talk to my daughter about <laughs> that message. And it speaks to my own heart about that message. And test it. Bring it up alongside what God's word is. Not just so that God's word will show me that that's not true, but so that God's word will show me that his design for who we are and the boundaries wherein we live is actually a much better design than what expressive individualism has to offer us. But this idea of expressive individualism, it is the water that we're swimming in. It's assumed. Maybe we never explicitly uh, define it that way, but it's there. And it shapes many of the things that we believe to be inherent rights in our culture. So for instance, let's apply this to the idea of, of gender and sexuality. It's become increasingly received wisdom, dogma, you might even say, from our culture, that no one gets to define your gender. Not even your body, not even your biological makeup has the authority to tell you what you are, male, female, or none of the above. Who gets to determine that? You do. You define it based on what you feel. It's shaped the way our country thinks about Thinks about life and things about abortion. This idea of self-definition and expressive individualism has a lot to do with why so many in our nation would, would, would assert that abortion on demand is an inalienable right. Because of being a parent is not part of what I believe my identity is right now or what I want for myself right now, then I should have the right to be able to not accept that as my identity. I don't need to be a parent, even if it means the ending of another life. This kind of thinking drives all kinds of, of evil industries. It drives the porn industry. I think that the part of the reason that we can be comfortable with pornography, the only way we can be comfortable with pornography, we believe that I get to define what my sexual expression looks like right now without concern for anyone else. I get to enjoy what I want now, regardless of how it affects anyone. I don't even need anyone else to participate. 
Christians are living out some of this kind of thinking too, of course. Again, we're not othering, right? We're not saying this is out there in the culture. This is right here in our own minds to some degree. Maybe we live it out in slightly altered ways, but we all kind of buy into this at some level. Don't we all kind of think of ourselves as determined by our choices to some degree? Haven't we all to some degree allowed our feelings to drive our sense of identity? Let's think a little bit more locally and more practically, because this is, this is, this is kind of high. This is kind of, if, if, the, if, if expressive individualism is kind of in the water, the water source is out there, let's think about like what's very immediately on tap for us right here. Let's think more locally. What's the water like in suburban Westchester, New York? the world that many of us inhabit, what does it look like? What's valued above all else in this culture? What's even worshipped in the place where we live? I'm no expert for sure. I've only lived in Westchester for a few years, but I've lived here long enough to to see that there are some things that are really valued. And and, and some of them are the same values that, that existed in the place that I moved here from. Not that different. I'll list a few of them that I think are important to the culture here in Westchester. Academic success. Opportunities for self-improvement, financial security, accumulation of material possessions, pursuit of a comfortable life and a comfortable retirement, the importance of proving yourself through success, career advancement, And those of you who have lived here longer and have been maybe older than me could, could add to that list. And we'd likely agree that, that none of those things should be worshipped, right? Should we be worshipping politi- uh, academic achievement? Should we be worshipping financial security and comfort and the accumulation of material things? No, we shouldn't worship that stuff. But how much have those values shaped us anyway? <laughs> At the level of decisions we make. We might also agree that not all, not, those things are not all bad either, are they? They're not completely wrong. The scriptures teach us about the importance of stewardship, about, about excellence, right? We're told to do everything that we put our hands to to the best of our ability. We're taught in the scriptures to steward the opportunities that God gives us, to whom much is given, much will be expected. Work hard. Those are biblical principles. But here's how conforming to the present age often works for us as Christians. Here's what it often looks like. It looks like certain biblical principles that happen to align with our culture's values. Those principles embraced in isolation from other less comfortable, more countercultural biblical principles. It's a kind of living that's kind of like proof text based. Like I can show you from the scriptures that I'm supposed to pursue career advancement. God wants me to use my gifts to the best of my ability. I can show you proof texts. But maybe I'm ignoring other counterbalancing principles in the scriptures. So that rather than rather than a life that's shaped by the whole counsel of God, I'm embracing truths in isolation from other counterbalancing truths. Often what happens to these truths when they're embraced in isolation from other truths, they become 
falsehood. <laughs> How do we know if that's happening? How do we know if you've done that, if we've done that? Well, one way to know is this. Do our goals and priorities and sources of comfort look very much like everyone else's? Do our goals and priorities and sources of comfort, do our lives look very much like everyone else's? When we compare the lives of exiles to the lives of citizens of this world, is there any difference? Here's another way to think about it. If we know, this is another way to know that that's happening in our lives, that conforming is happening in our lives. Do, do, do our beliefs and values line up cleanly with a political party? Our positions line up cleanly with a political party? Last week, we made the, the obvious observation that the environment we grow up in shapes us, and there's no doubt that growing up in the cultures where we've grown up has shaped us. Maybe, maybe over this week, as you've thought about that question, I hope you've thought about that question, maybe you've been able to identify some areas where you see yourself as liable to conforming or some areas where you have been conforming to this present age. The question we need to end with is how can we be transformed? How can we be transformed? Well, one answer to that is right in our passage. Do not be, 12.2, Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Testing, testing. Paul goes on in this, and we looked at this last week, he goes on in chapter 12 and chapter 13 and on, onward. He gives examples of what is the good and acceptable, perfect will of God. What does God look at and say, that's good, that's acceptable? And what does he list in here in Romans 12? He talks about humbly serving one another. He talks about caring for those whose needs we're able to care for and meet talks about loving one another with brotherly affection. He talks about blessing those who persecute you, mourning and weeping with those who weep, not considering ourselves wise in our own eyes, never repaying evil for evil, living peaceably with all people as much as, we, as it depends on us, never avenging ourselves, feeding our enemy when he or she is hungry, Submitting to governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. So whoever resists authorities resists God himself. And he goes on to give lots of examples of what it looks like to align ourselves with the perfect will of God. And so, as we live in this culture, every quote-unquote truth that we're given needs to be tested against the Word of God. Does it align? Does it align to the philosophies that we are in some way subtly already living by? Do they align with the principles and ethics that God communicates to us? The only way we can do that kind of testing, to put it plainly, is we need to be in God's Word. It's the only way. In God's Word. Not, not working off of what we already know about God's Word. 
but constantly in God's word, seeking to look at it with fresh eyes. Because what he's calling us to is a constant renewing of our minds, and a constant renewing of our minds requires us to be constantly exposed, exposing our minds to what God actually tells us so that his word is discipling us. We're all being discipled, aren't we? We're all being discipled. We're being discipled by news outlets. We're being discipled by social, social media posts. We're being discipled by our preferred sources of information. We're all being discipled. The question is, who is discipling you? And if our hearts, are, if our minds are going to be renewed, transformed, Every discipler, the voice of every discipler that we have in our lives needs to be held up against the, the blazing light of God's radical discipling truth. Like Pastor Logan, Doug Logan said, we need the spirit of the men of Issachar and the spirit of the Bereans. And this kind of testing requires humility on our part because there needs to be this constant willingness to question ourselves. Not questioning God's word, I'm questioning myself and my interpretation of God's word. I'm questioning myself and how and whether or not my way of viewing God's word has been compromised by the culture that I live in. Testing everything. You know, another way that we can fight to have our minds continually renewed is through catechesis. Catechesis. Um, catechesis is what Uncle Tim was doing just 30 minutes ago or so when he was teaching us about how God created everything. Catechesis means simply learning fundamental truths about what the Bible teaches regarding who God is, who we are, how we can know God, how can we can be saved by God, how we should live once we are saved by God. Simple questions and answers. In my catechesis, I'm not so much talking about the process of the questions and answers as much as, I, although that, that's wonderful, I'm talking about simply learning God's truth in systematic ways, bringing ourselves back to basics. I love these children's catechism classes. I love them. I feel like I've learned a great deal sitting back there listening to Uncle Alex or Uncle Che or Uncle Tim or Mr. Uncle, Elder Alex, Pastor Alex, I don't know all the, the prefixes, but the, listening to these brothers as they, in simple ways, unpack God's word. And I'm thinking, we need this. Not just our kids, we need this. Even last week, brothers, as Alex was talking to us about the creation of humanity and talking to us about God's design in creating humanity, male and female, and why? Not just that he did create humans as male and female, but why that matters. Why he created us in the first place. An overflow of the love of the God who is love. These are fundamental truths that are meant to shape us so that we can live with integrity in this culture. It's a constant process. We don't catechize our kids and then send them on their way. No, we need to be catechized on an ongoing basis through life. So we understand not just the, the what of God's word, but the why. The why. 
That's what I was saying. I think what, what Alex did last week was super helpful in terms of helping us see why is it that God designed humanity in terms of in this binary system of two genders. Why? Why does that exist? There's been a generational shift with regard to sexuality and sexual ethic in our world, and, and many young Christians probably know what the Bible says about sex and sexuality. I'm, 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 I don't even know if I should say that. I think, I think some young Christians know what the Bible says about sex and sexuality, but most don't know why the Bible says that. And so we need to persuasively provide context understanding so that by understanding they they might be able to we might be able to struggle with what the bible says to see that god's commands are are not arbitrary and his design is not haphazard but it's part of a larger beautiful vision for the flourishing of humanity that he created lastly i'll say this i think the last way that we can pursue this ongoing renewing of our minds this ongoing transformation is we need accountability. We need accountability, and that comes in different ways. We need our beliefs challenged, don't we? And that comes in different ways. One way it comes is through exposure to opposing views. We, 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 by belonging to a community, belonging to a community that doesn't just affirm us in our beliefs, but challenges us. We, we like to find echo chambers. We like to find people that all agree with us. The church is not meant to be a place like that. The church is meant to be a place where we agree on fundamental doctrines of truth, but we're constantly challenging each other to make sure, each other to make sure that we're not straying from those truths. I had this experience just last night as I was, I was sitting with brother and sister. My wife and I were sitting with brother and sister right back there. We were sitting um, on, a, on an online call, and the, the discussion, as fun as it was, it got uncomfortable at points because... My brother and my sister were, were, were sharing truths with me from the scriptures that were challenging me. They were challenging the ways that I view my own comfort, my own possessions, the needs of others. I was being pointed back to teaching in the scripture that I know of, but I haven't been looking at recently. It calls me to a radical generosity and a care for the needs of others that I've probably been ignoring. We need this. I read recently about a man who was, who was there on January 6th uh, uh, rioting at the, at the Capitol. And the story in the Washington Post talks about how this man, his, fam his, his church family, had been reaching out to him for months telling him, dude, the stuff you're posting online, it's just angry. There's so much outrage. We're worried about you. His pastors are telling him, we're worried about you, man. He himself saw that, he was appreciative of it, but he kept just kind of listening to those voices that were just feeding anger, just feeding pride, just feeding this, this warlike mentality, separate from accountability to any kind of community. He ends up arrested in jail for actions that he himself, in hindsight, looks back and says, man, my community was warning me that I was going off the deep end, that I was departing from the fundamental truths of the gospel and pursuing to change this world based on this world's terms or in this world's ways. So we need accountability. And if I, I'll end with this, I'm sorry I've gone on so long, but I'll put, I'll, go on with this. One, one, I'll put in a plug for corporate worship as one of the ways that we find that kind of accountability. 
by gathering as God's people to worship. Not just once, gathering over time as God's people to, to hear his word, to sing his word, to pray together, to read his word, to share with each other what's going on in our lives. We find ourselves being discipled together. And we find accountability in the midst of that so that keeps us safe from being more and more conformed to this present age. The Lord's Supper brings us back to remind us what, what kingdom we belong to as we sing, your will be done. As we sing, we will feast in the house of Zion. As we, as we feast, our hope is only in Christ. As we sing these songs, we're reminded that our citizenship is not here. And so test. Seek accountability in community. And together, I trust that together we can, by the power of the Spirit, be transformed rather than conformed. And as we come to see the God of the Bible as more important than our culture and his truth is more trustworthy than anything our culture has to offer us, we will be transformed. And we'll be empowered by Spirit to give ourselves to him as sacrifices. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would give us discernment. We ask that you would give us the power to read your word with fresh eyes, not filtering it through the grid of our culturally approved assumptions. Lord, we, we, we don't want to be people of our times. Give us the spirit of the men of Issachar, the spirit of the Bereans. Give us minds that are shaped by your word. We don't want to fight a culture war. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. So help us fight for that, for your glory, Lord, for our good and for the good of the cities where you've put us. Amen.